Good morning. Let's turn in God's word, please, to the gospel according to John, chapter one, John one. It's been great to be with you this weekend. Your retreat is just a a banner day of the year. And when it coincides with Harold's birthday, it's, it's like just a tremendous confluence of good things. Now, Luciano Pavarotti, the great Italian tenor, had a number of nicknames. Some people call him the people's tenor. And my son, Micah, likes to sing happy birthday in the style of Junior Pavarotti. So, Brother Harold, if you ask him after the meeting, he'll probably oblige you. But he also had a title, the King of the High Seas. And this morning, that's a bit like my outline, because we're going to look at eight sections of Scripture mainly. And we're going to talk about seas with each of these to help us sort of have an aid to our memory. Now, I'm not a great outliner, and I'm usually not one who is alliterative in my outlines, but this is just what the Lord gave me today. And when we think about fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus, as we have all weekend, there's numerous brothers and sisters in the Bible that we could go to and look at. But really, I was impressed with Peter, who was certainly the most vocal of our Lord's 12 disciples in the Gospels and the main servant of the Lord in the first 12 chapters of Acts. So Peter has a major role in early church history, not to mention the two epistles that the Holy Spirit used him to write. We're not going to look at everything about Peter, of course. There's far too many passages, too much scripture to cover. But I want to give you a representation as we watch Peter's view of the Lord Jesus Christ expand and grow. And we'll start this morning with John chapter 1. So again, before we read, I thank you for all the kindnesses extended to our family this weekend, and we're glad to be with you. Now let's start our reading, John chapter 1, verse 35. John 1 and 35. Again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples... And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, And remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas which is translated a stone. Now, this is what we might call commencement, because it's the beginning of Peter's life with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all have to start somewhere. So often when I've met strangers, the question inevitably comes up, are you a Christian? And they say to me, oh, yes, I've always been a Christian. I was born a Christian. Biblically, That is not a correct answer. None of us is born the first time into this world of our natural parents 
as Christians. Doesn't matter if mom and dad were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, our grandparents, our great grandparents. You may go back four and five generations or more of believers. You know what that makes you? It makes you very blessed because you have a tremendous heritage of gospel light in your family. But you know what the Lord Jesus told Nicodemus? We heard it this morning in the other meeting. John three, you must be born again. You've got to start all over. It's not the natural that avails. It's not being connected to the right family. Now, in American politics, we've had dynastic families almost from the beginning, haven't we? We've had Adamses who've run through presidential history and we've had Harrisons. Of course, who could forget William Henry Harrison, the oldest president until Ronald Reagan, the president who served the least amount of time and the president who shares a birthday with Keith Richard Kaiser, February 9th. And of course, you know, Benjamin Harrison later and more Modern times, we've seen political dynasties like the Kennedys and the Bushes, and we can see what being connected with the right family does for you in those circles. But when we talk about eternal life and knowing the Lord, it only puts us in proximity to the gospel. In other words, if we have family members or even close friends that are believers, that's a tremendously privileged position Because there's somebody close to us that knows what must be done, that knows we must repent. We must see ourselves as sinners and we turn from ourselves and our sin and say, Lord, if you don't save me, I can't be saved. And we look at the Lord Jesus. And when we say it's already done, we're not talking about the Lord's teaching as great as that was. We're not talking about the Lord's blameless sinless life that he lived, as great as that was. We're talking about the work of redemption, the saving work that the Lord Jesus did on the cross by laying down his life in sacrifice, that he paid the debt, as we sang again this morning. Thank you for that, Brother Josh, that he paid the debt he did not owe to pay that debt that we couldn't pay, that the Lord Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and was buried and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, Just like 1 Corinthians 15 says it. Now, Peter had to start somewhere. He was a God-fearing Jew. He was someone who believed in the scriptures. He was someone who kept kosher, as you find out in several later incidents in his life. But he didn't know the Lord up until this time that we read about here. When he heard the message from the forerunner, John the Baptist, saying, behold, the Lamb of God. And uh, actually, his brother and another disciple heard it. But they came to Peter very shortly after, apparently. And they said, we found the Messiah. And they brought Peter to the Lord Jesus. What a tremendous privilege that is. I hope that we're prayerfully burdened about that, of bringing the people we love to the Lord Jesus, of bringing them to him and saying, here he is. Here's the Messiah. Here's the Savior. Here's the one you need. You need to put your faith in him. Trust in him alone to save you. And I know I'm preaching to the choir on this point. Now, the Lord nicknamed Peter here Cephas. That's Aramaic for a stone. And Peter itself was a nickname. Petros means a stone, too. Not a rock. The Lord will use a different word for that later. We'll see. But. Some have even paraphrased it. Peter's the rock man. Now, he was a tough cookie. 
He was, as we see, a bold fellow. And it is sort of a uh, sort of a cottage industry, shall I say, of preachers to pick on Peter. I'm not here to pick on Peter this morning, although inevitably we're going to have to look at some of his faults because the Bible paints a true historical picture of Peter, like Oliver Cromwell asked a portraitist of his day, I want you to paint me warts and all. In other words, don't airbrush out the blemishes in the painting. Show me as I actually am. This was the commencement. The Lord Jesus uh, met Peter in this incident and saved him by faith and he became one of his disciples. Now let's go over to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. These passages are going to be broadly in chronological order. Luke chapter 5. By now, the Lord's ministry has begun and he's going about doing various signs to authenticate that he really is the Messiah come from God. And he's already teaching in the synagogues and sometimes out on a hillside like he did in what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6 and 7. And I take it that's already occurred by this time in Luke 5 that we read about here. Now, look at verse 1, Luke 5 and verse 1. So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, that's known elsewhere as the Sea of Galilee and saw two boats standing by the lake But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. So here's Peter again and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. I should note there that some manuscripts say plural, the nets. So depending on your translation, it may say net or it may say nets. It doesn't really change the thrust of the passage very much. Verse six. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus feet, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now, we thought about the commencement in John chapter one. This passage makes me think of contrition because you see that Peter is very sorry about something. What is he sorry about? Well, the Lord said, thrust out into the deep. And let down your nets. And Peter has to say, no, you know, reading between the lines. Lord, you really know your theology. You know your scriptures. You're a great Bible teacher. But I'm a fisherman and you're not. And we've been at this all night, you know. And we've caught nothing. 
It's the wrong time of day to go fishing. And what's more, we have the wrong equipment because my friend and Brother Van Duzer's good friend, Gordon Franz. I met Brother Franz through Brother Van Duzer. Brother Gordon Franz will point out that the nets they used at night were the nets known as tremel nets. They didn't use them in daytime. Why not? The fish could see them. Now, you know how it is with putting your fishing line in the water, I'm sure. You don't want the fish to see the fishing pole. You don't stick the whole pole underwater, right? Because the fish is down there laughing his gills off. I mean, he'll bust a fin laughing at you because he says, look at that dumb fisherman. You want to simulate a living creature like some worm doing scuba diving or something. You know, whatever happens in nature and it appeals to the fish and the fish goes and grabs the worm and gets taken by the hook, of course. So you don't want to let the fish know that you're fishing. You want to be very subtle about it and clever. And so they put down the net, according to some manuscripts. And either way, whether they put down one net or whether they actually put down more, it's evident by the context. Peter didn't think they were going to get anything. And yet they got so much that the net was breaking and the boats were filled. And Peter falls down and in contrition says, depart from me. Lord, I am a sinful man. Now, why that reaction? He could have just said, well, obviously I was wrong. You seem to know more about fishing than at first glance. I mean, small wonder since the Lord made the fish fill the seas when he created the world. And he could have just apologized right then and there. Why fall down and have this response? Well, as I say, at this point in history, he's heard the Sermon on the Mount. And what does the Lord say in chapter six, Matthew chapter six in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, he says, take no thought for what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, or what you're going to put on, because all these things the Gentiles seek after. But your father knows the things that you have need of. So seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. I mean, there's Peter, and he's so worried about what he's going to get. And yet the Lord Jesus says, you know, I rented out your boat to do my mobile teaching here. You were a floating pulpit for me, so to speak. And I'm going to give you your wages, Peter. You follow me. I'm going to support you. And that's why Peter falls down in contrition and says, Lord, I should have been listening better to your word. I should have realized that wasn't just great oratory or a very eloquent sermon. This is real life stuff that you can meet my needs. Did he get the lesson? Oh, absolutely. Because it says in verse 11 here. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. They left the business there and they said, "Okay, now we're going to catch men with the Lord Jesus. Now we're going with him for his mission. So commission leads to contrition. Let's go to the Gospel of Matthew, this time to chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. And by now the disciples are following the Lord and participating in his ministry and have even been sent out to preach and teach and do signs and wonders in the Lord's name at this stage, at least to Israel, according to chapter 10. And we read. In Matthew 14 and 22, 
Matthew 14, 22. This is after the Lord feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. And we read here in Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. What a picture that is. Can you imagine that there they are out in the ship and the boat is being assailed by the waves. It's being beaten around and, and it's going to and fro. And again, these men, several of them at least, had been professional fishermen. They were seasoned mariners. They all, except Judas, seemed to have hailed from Galilee. And so they were familiar with the Lake Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee and of the storms that could come down on it and how it could sink a ship. You can go to Israel today to a certain kibbutz in Galilee, on not far from the Sea of Galilee, and you can see the Jesus boat. What is the Jesus boat? Well, it wasn't literally the Lord's boat, but it was a boat from the time of the Lord Jesus which sank in the mud and the mud preserved it. And they have it there in a special solution. And it gives you an idea of the kind of ship that the disciples and the Lord would have used. But as they're being beaten by the waves and going through the dark night, where's the Lord Jesus? Well, he's up on the mountain. They can't see him. It probably would have been different for their attitude if they had borne it in mind. But he could see them. And he was up on the mountain praying for them. Now, what a wonderful picture. Because, you know, sometimes we get into situations that are very dark. We can have tribulation that comes into our life. Storms, you might say. Where there's a dark problem. And we ask ourselves the question, does God... See me. I was talking to a brother about this yesterday and he was saying, sometimes you feel like, does God really hear my prayers? And we had to remind ourselves from the scripture that we don't go by feelings. We go by what the word of God says and that the Lord Jesus, as Hebrews 725 tells us, ever lives to make intercession for us. That if we're a believer, the Lord Jesus is our great high priest appearing there in glory for us. And he's always praying for us. We'll see that said explicitly to Peter in a later passage. But as they're there being tossed, it says, verse 25, now in the fourth watch of the night, this is the last watch, the darkest time of the night just before the dawn. Jesus went to them. Walking on the sea. Obviously, this is miraculous. And then the disciples saw him walking on the sea. They were troubled, saying it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. No, I didn't plan a Halloween tie in. And I'm not anything on ghosts and goblins because the Bible teaches that there are no such thing as ghosts. But the Bible does teach us that when you're afraid, you can say really daft, really stupid things, you know. You can get kind of superstitious. And so uh, they, they said, a spirit, <laughs> this is scary. You know, they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer. It is I do not be afraid. What a wonderful thing it is to hear the Lord's voice in the storm. 
and to say, it is I, be not afraid. One of my favorite poems, which I wish, wish that I could quote to you, but I cannot, by the South African poet William Blaine, not to be confused with William Blake, the English poet who was a lot weirder. But William Blaine, a godly believer of the early 20th century and the late Boyd Nicholson Sr.'s favorite poet, wrote a lovely poem based on this passage called Be Not Afraid, Tis I. So if you can ever find that poem, it's in his little book, Lays of Life and Hope. I commend it to you. It's excellent. And the Lord comes and tells them, it's I, do not be afraid. It's not that there are spirits out there that we're at the mercy of. Yes, there are spiritual beings that oppose. There are unclean spirits, the gospel says. The Bible also calls them demons. And they try to delude and to deceive and to destroy human beings. But if you're a believer, the Lord protects you. The Lord comes to you in the storm and he gives the assurance, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him, verse 28, and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, in keeping with our outline, we've had commencement and contrition. I'm going to call this confidence. And it is confidence. We're going to see the good and the bad. First, the good. Lord, if it's you, command me to come on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Oh, what a fantastic experience that must have been. To come out of that boat and walk on the water. I mean, it took some hooks to do that, right? To look at the Lord and say, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come and I'll go out and I'll walk on the water. And yet there's a lesson for us here, right? Because it says in verse 30, but when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. Now, that's the wrong kind of confidence, right? When he had his eyes on the Lord, that was the right confidence. That was confidence well placed, because if you put your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus never fails. The Lord Jesus has never let anybody down. As the hymn writer said, his promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. The Lord hasn't broken his word or gone back on his promise. He's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He is, positively speaking, the truth. And you can believe what he says to you. And as long as our eyes are on him, we don't sink. But let our eyes get on the wind. Which is interesting because wind is invisible, technically speaking, isn't it? And yet he saw the wind. He saw the effect, obviously. All the waves blowing. And I'm sympathetic because I've been on large bodies of water in storms before. And it's pretty scary. And I've been in small boats with the waves coming over the front and dousing you. A very, very cold day, I remember, on the St. Lawrence Seaway in Canada one time as a kid. And I thought, man, one of these ways is going to put us down. But thank the Lord we made it back safely. And when we look around at the waves that are coming, when we look at the blows and the billows and all these troubles that can come into life, we start to sink because we're not looking at the Lord. 
We're looking at our troubles. And that's the wrong kind of confidence. We're having self-confidence. And we're saying, what am I going to do about this? What am I going to do about that? Instead of looking to the Lord and saying, Lord, save. That's what Peter does, you know. This is the lovely thing about Peter. Does Peter make mistakes? Oh, yeah. Does Peter fail? Oh, yeah. Does Peter downright sin sometimes in Scripture? Yes, he does. But Peter comes back to the Lord. Peter repents. And repentance is just not something we do when we first believe, when we're saved. It is the ongoing, regular state of the Christian life that a believer has to continue bringing our lives back to the Lord. And saying, Lord, I've gone astray. Now I've got to come back to you. Lord, I got distracted. My eyes were off you. Lord, I've got to put them back. I've got to have spiritual sight and look at you. That's why Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter one, that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened and that they may behold the inheritance that the Lord had given to them and the inheritance that he even had in them. So we've had. Commencement, we've had contrition, we have confidence, the good and the bad. And now we go over to chapter 16 and we are going to think about confession and contradiction. Now, this is a famous passage, so we probably don't need to spend much time. And that's good because time's hastening on Matthew 16 and verse 13, Matthew 16 and 13. First confession, Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Later, he's going to send them into all the world in chapter 28 and tell them to tell everyone, tell them to tell all the nations, or as he says in Mark 16, to preach the gospel to every creature. But here, the news is restricted because of the mission of the Lord at that point in time. He's not looking for hype. He's looking to develop truly seeking souls bring them to faith and build them up in himself. Now, the Lord asks, who do men say that I am? And Peter makes this great confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, which the phrase the living God has particular resonance here because Caesarea Philippi was an area where there were a lot of idolatrous shrines where people had brought in different ideas of what they thought God was like as far back as 200 B.C. or earlier, they had started to make different shrines there to other gods. And of course, being good Jews, they weren't going to say, well, Lord, they think you're like Zeus or Apollo or somebody like that. They 
picked out heroes of the faith. They say you're like John the Baptist or you're like Elijah or you're like Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, if you were to say that about any one of us, we'd be over the moon, right? We wouldn't fit out the door. Our heads would be so swollen at the comparison with these great worthies of the faith. But when we talk about the Lord Jesus, it's far too small a comparison, isn't it? The Lord Jesus is far too great because he is not merely a servant. He is said, yes, to be an apostle. He is said to be a prophet. He is said to be a teacher, but he's much more than all of those things. He is God, God, the son. He is the Christ. That is the Messiah, the son of the living God, not like these dead idols that men worship around here. But you're the son of the living God, says Peter. So that's the confession. Oh, what a great confession that is. Head of the class, Peter. You're Peter, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, different word. I'm going to build my church based on what you've just said. This is the foundation of the church. We sing it sometimes. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, No man can lay any other foundation than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That is the foundation that these men, by their ministry, laid. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. He has laid down that foundation and he holds it together. And he says, upon this rock, the rock that he's the Christ, the son of the living God, he's going to build his church. Well, that's tremendous. And it's at this point that the Lord begins explaining to them that he's going to go to Jerusalem, as our brother reminded us in the Lord's Supper, and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, he has to say to Peter at this point, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that are of men. In other words, a moment ago, you had heavenly perspective. You were speaking the truth from God that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. And I commend you for that. But now this, this is contradiction. Now you're speaking like an adversary because that's what Satan means. You're speaking like someone who's opposing the will of God. You're even speaking like that arch enemy of truth, the father of lies, Satan himself. Because he didn't want Jesus to go to the cross and to deal with sin and to open the way of salvation to humankind. He didn't want any of that. And he said... You know, basically, you're proposing the crown without the cross. Now, Satan did that, too, you recall, when our Lord was tempted by him in the wilderness. In Matthew four, for example, he said all of these kingdoms, the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, he shows him in his in their glory. He says, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you fall down and worship me. And the Lord Jesus says, get thee hence. Satan, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him alone shalt thou serve. You want me to have the kingdoms without the cross? You want me to take the crown for myself from your hand? No, no. I'm going to the cross and then the crown. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? He would later tell his disciples on the road 
to Emmaus in Luke 24. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to have entered into his glory? It's the cross and then the crown. So there's confession, but then there's contradiction. We can say something that's biblical and true and we can be spot on, but we got to be careful. We got to keep our eyes on the Lord or a few moments later, we could be saying something contradictory, something that actually speaks against God's truth and speaks against the very mission that the Lord Jesus came to do. Now, in chapter 17, you could think about the fact that in chapter 17, there's going to be communion and confusion because the Lord Jesus takes Peter, James and John up on this mountain and they get to see a wonderful sight. The Lord transfigured in glory. It's like he was turned inside out. You know, the incarnate glory of the son of God shown. They were given a preview of the kingdom. That's what the Lord described this as in Matthew 16, that there were some that were going to see the son of man coming in his kingdom. And here they see it in chapter 17. And so they have this wonderful communion. And out of the ecstasy of that moment, confusion enters in because Peter starts talking. And one of the gospels says, not knowing what to say, he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. We should put a period. Just stop, Peter. Just stop right there. But often we don't stop. (laughs) We go ahead. He said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And before he was done speaking, a cloud overshadowed them. That was reminiscent of Exodus, how God revealed himself, right? In that cloud that would be over the tabernacle. Go to Larry Price's meetings. You'll hear about it. Commercial with no uh, extra charge there. But anyway... The cloud said, this is my son, my beloved son. Hear ye him. Don't look at Moses. Don't look at Elijah. Keep your eyes on the Lord. And so many Christians can fall into that trap, can't they? They can look back in church history and they can say, oh, uh, oh, Irenaeus and Polycarp and Augustine and, uh, you know, Aquinas and Martin Luther and John Calvin and Charles Wesley and John Wesley and Whitfield and Darby and Kelly and Macintosh and on and on it goes right down to the present day. Name the flavor of the week. Alistair Begg or John MacArthur or whoever. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these brothers themselves. But people fixate on men. And the Bible says, don't look at men. Look at Christ. Keep your eyes on him and hear him. So. That communion leads to confusion, unfortunately. Now, I'm going to skip ahead to Luke 22 very quickly and then to Second Peter 1 in conclusion. And in Luke 22, the Lord tells Peter what's about to happen to all the disciples and to him in particular. So in Luke 22, I call this commissioning, which you might think is kind of strange. Because the Lord says in Luke twenty two thirty one, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brother. Now, this is coming in the context when all of the disciples have said, surely not I. I will never betray you. 
All of them have said, we're willing to die for you. But Peter, as always, has been the loudest voice. He's been the most vociferous in protesting his fidelity and his unswerving loyalty and his courage and that he's not going to leave the Lord. And to his credit, when they come to arrest the Lord, he's the only one that actually tries to defend the Lord, although it's misplaced. And the Lord has to tell him to put up his sword. But the reason I call this commissioning is the Lord goes beyond just telling him about his denial. He tells him Satan wants to shake you up like sifting wheat. But I've prayed for you. Remember Hebrews seven twenty five. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He's praying for us. I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So, yes, he tells Peter he's going to deny him three times that night. But he also tells Peter he's going to be restored and he's going to have a ministry after that, which we read about in his epistles. Now we go over then to Second Peter, chapter one, Second Peter, chapter one. I'm so grateful for a God who is merciful and forgives us even after we're saved and who, when we fail, says, I can pick you up again. That's not an excuse for failure, of course. Uh, in a sense, we want to be like Gene Krantz, the former, one of the former mission, um, it's not the right term for it, but the guys who oversaw the scientists at NASA, sort of the, the launch boss, if I can use that term. Sorry, at the end of the weekend, sleep deprivation kicks in, and I can't remember the exact title. But Gene Krantz, wrote his memoir and called it failure is not an option. So as believers, we don't want to say, oh, it's okay to fail. We want to go on for the Lord and say, Lord, strengthen me and keep me from falling. But at the same time, we have to be like Peter and realize the Lord knows our frailty better than we do. And no matter how courageous we may feel, we can fall down. But the Lord lifts us up. Now, notice Second Peter 1, 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, Peter's thinking of one incident in particular that showed the glorious majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said we were eyewitnesses. Verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him. From the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mount. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. And he's saying, you know, apostolic testimony, what we apostles have told you about the Lord Jesus Christ is true. We know it's true because we ourselves were eyewitnesses of his glory. And we heard the father from heaven speak and authenticate him and say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, look at verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed all of these prophecies that said Messiah would come and he would be Emmanuel, God with us. We've seen confirmation of that in our own experience as the apostles. And now we have that experience written down in the New Testament for us, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star 
rises in your hearts. Now, the dawning day and the morning star, these are astronomical terms, terms to do with the stars, but they have to do with the coming of the Lord Jesus, of his return. And it's a personal thing. He wants in our hearts for us to see the reality of the hope of his return. To have our eyes, as one of my late friends used to write me emails, he would sign off and say, keep your eyes on the clouds. He was saying, look for the Lord Jesus who said, I'm coming with clouds. So my friend would write, keep your eyes on the clouds. And he wants us to have in our own hearts that hope, that settled knowledge that we're looking toward the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing this first, verse 20 says, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What's he saying? He's saying, how can you trust what the Bible says about Jesus Christ is true? How can you trust that he is Lord and that he is coming back again? You can trust it. Because this wasn't something that people just made up. This was something that was revealed to them by God's spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit moved them or they were borne along. It's like being carried down a river in that current. Borne along by the Holy Spirit, they wrote down what the Lord said. Now, Daniel chapter 2, since you're about to start Daniel, shows us an excellent picture of that. You know, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he tells his wise men, I'd like to know what this dream means. Okay, tell us the dream and we'll interpret it for you. No, 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 says Nebuchadnezzar. I know that you want to gain time. I know you want to make something up, you know, make up a plausible sounding story. What Peter would call here a myth. I know you just want to make something up. But if you can tell me the dream, I know you'll be able to tell me what it means. And all the wise men couldn't do it, could they? But Daniel and his friends sought God. And when they got the answer, they thanked the Lord and they went into the king and they said, it is God who gives the answer in the name of the Lord. They told the dream and then they interpreted it. You see, there had to be something That was outside the purview of human knowledge. The wise men said, no wise man has ever been able to do this because this is the answer with the gods and their dwelling isn't with flesh. In other words, we live in a closed system. There are gods out there somewhere, but they don't speak directly to men and tell us these things. We've just got to use our brain power and figure stuff out for ourselves. No, says God in Daniel chapter two. I've revealed the answer to my servant, David, just like Peter's talking about here. The Holy Spirit bears these men along to write down the word of God and to give us the more sure word of prophecy. In other words, the word of prophecy that you can have full confidence in. So how do we fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus today? We're not like Peter. We can't go and see where he's living. We can't get on the boat with the Lord Jesus and watch him make a great catch of fish. We can't go to Caesarea Philippi with him and and hear him teach there audibly. But we do have the scriptures whereby the Lord, through his spirit, talks to us and tells us his truth in such a way that we can have full confidence in it. 
because this is the revealed mind of God. We have to keep coming back to the Bible. Now, we live in a subjective age and we live in an age when a lot of people say, well, I felt this or I thought this or I had a dream. And so I did this. Or we even have people that say, I died and went to heaven and I came back again. And what did you do then? Well, I wrote a book that went to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Okay, And they put all kinds of faith in these things. Other people put faith in astrology. Other people put faith in human science. All these different things, right? And what we have to do is come back and say, no, we're going to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ through his holy word. That's how we're going to look at Christ. That's how we're going to listen to Christ. That's going to inform how we live our lives and what we do. Back to the scriptures, asking the Lord, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. May God help us to do so. Father, we're thankful for thy word. Do pray for our fellowship and for the food we'll have shortly. We give thee thanks for all this. Thank thee for a good weekend. Thank thee for good weather and safety. And as far as I know, health for everyone. And we do ask thee to take us home in safety. And we do pray that the fellowship would continue and the things we've heard from the word of God would be plugged in in our daily lives, that we would have confidence in thy word and we would build our lives on the rock that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who's revealed to us in scripture. We thank thee for him in the Lord Jesus name. Amen.